0: Pastor's reading tonight is in Leviticus chapter twenty-six. I was telling a few friends they asked me what I was going to preach on for my last RF large group. And I was like, "Obviously, Leviticus twenty-six, right?" <laughs> it's like the highlight of the Bible. <clears throat> I think it actually is, though. Let's read it in verse 1. Do not make idols or set up an image or a sacred stone for yourselves, and do not place a carved stone in your land to bow down before it. I'm the Lord your God. Observe my Sabbaths and have reverence for my sanctuary. I'm the Lord. If you follow my decrees and are careful to obey my commands, I will send you rain in its season. The ground will yield its crops and the trees their fruit. Your threshing will continue until grape harvest and the grape harvest will continue until planting and you will eat all the food you want and live in the safety and live in safety in your land. I will grant peace in the land and you will lie down and no one will make you afraid. I will remove wild beasts from the land and the sword will not pass through your country. You will pursue your enemies and they will fall by the sword before you five of you will chase a hundred and a hundred of you will chase ten thousand and your enemies will fall by the sword before you I will look on you with favor and make you fruitful and increase your number and I will keep my covenant with you you will You'll still be eating last year's harvest when you have to move it out to make room for the new I will put my dwelling place among you and I will not abhor you I will walk among you and be your God and you'll be my people I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt so that you would no longer be slaves to the Egyptians. I broke the bars of your yoke and enabled you to walk with heads held high. But if you will not listen to me and carry out all these commands, and if you reject my decrees and abhor my laws and fail to carry out all of my commands and so violate my covenant, then I will do do this to you. I will bring on you sudden terror, wasting diseases and fever that will destroy your sight and sap your strength. You will plant seed in vain because your enemies will eat it. I will set my face against you so that you will be defeated by your enemies. Those who hate you will rule over you, and you will flee even when no one is pursuing you. If after all this you will not listen to me, I will punish you for your sins seven times over. I will break down your stubborn pride and make the sky above you like iron and the ground beneath you like bronze. Your strength will be spent in vain because your soil will not yield its crops, nor will the trees of your land yield their fruit. If you remain hostile toward me and, and refuse to listen to me, I will multiply your afflictions seven times over as your sins deserve. Skipping down to verse 49, because verses 23, 22 through 39 sound like 14 through 19. They're pretty dark. Verse 40, But if they will confess their sins and the sins of their ancestors, their unfaithfulness and their hostility toward me, uh, which made me hostile toward them so that I sent them into the land of their enemies, then when their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they pay for their sin, I will remember my covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember the land. For the land will be deserted by them and will enjoy its Sabbaths while it lies desolate without them. They will pay for their sins because they rejected my laws and abhorred my decrees. Yet in spite of this, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them or abhor them so as to destroy them completely, breaking my covenant with them. I am the Lord, their God. But for their sake, I will remember the covenant with their ancestors whom I brought out of Egypt in the sight of the nations to be their God. I am the Lord. This is God's Word. I'm going to blow my nose real quick. Um, before I jump in, I listened to a couple of sermons this week, getting ready for this. One by Les Newsome, one by uh, Tim Keller, and they were helpful. So if something sounds good in here, it's probably one of theirs. <laughs> uh, look, at RUF, we're constantly uh, saying some version of this. That we're we're trying to present Christianity, the message of the Bible, and its truth claims for you to consider in an environment alongside people, hopefully in an environment that's low pressure. Um, And at its heart, the message of Christianity and what we're trying to do is, is nothing more than trying to answer the question we've been looking at all semester. If there is a God, what's it like to relate to him? If there is a God, what does it look like to draw near to him? What does that look like? What's that like for him? What's that like for us? What is that like? Like, And tonight we come to the central descriptive word of how human beings relate to God. And that word is covenant. A covenant is God's way of saying to his people, I want more than a casual relationship with you. I want more than just casual uh, a relationship. And, and if we understand what he's saying in that, it's kind of terrifying. It's kind of terrifying because he's saying, I, I don't want to just date you. I don't wanna, I'm not content with just the niceties and kind of us complimenting each other and me telling you you're great and you telling me I'm awesome and holy. Like, God's like, no, I want more than that. If I'm going to have a relationship with people, I want to marry you. I want to go all the way down with you. I want, to, I want to get in your life, and I want you to get into my life. And that's why, to describe covenant that way, sometimes we talk about marriage itself as the marriage covenant. And that's why it's this interlacing of life and of, of priorities and of relationships. It's everything. It's all this enmeshing of two beings coming together. So tonight, what I want us to do is I want us to talk about the covenant. Under four headings, they're on your handout right there. Covenant defined, covenant terms, covenant keeper, and then a covenant life. So firstly, right there, covenant defined. So I've kind of introduced it. Uh, what is it? So I'm going to track along with that idea of a marriage that I, that I just started talking about. <laughs> Imagine that there are uh, there's, there's a man and a woman, a guy and a girl, and they've been dating for a while and they're getting pretty serious. They're okay, getting pretty serious. They're starting to think about marriage, maybe even starting to talk about it. And um, they sit down and talk about their passions, right—the the things that they really value and that they love. And that conversation goes this way. She says, I need for you to know three things about me. One is that, the first one is that I hate cigarettes. I can't stand cigarette smoke. I'm really allergic to it and it makes me crazy. And he says this, okay, but I'm going to smoke because I love cigarettes. I can't imagine a day without cigarettes. Uh thanks for telling me about that though. I appreciate it. She says, "Okay. Well, something else that we should uh that I think about is that we should set our living expenses very low so that we can give away our money uh and find other places where we can give our stuff to." And he looks at her and says, "Um, well, good to know." But I want several homes and a few cars at each home uh, to kind of deal with as I desire. So um, I don't care if I have to go into debt to get those things, but that's what I want out of life. She says, okay, thank you. Uh, (laughs) Thank you, that feels great. Uh, One last thing. I want to live in an interracial neighborhood because uh, I want to reach out to another community of people that's different from me and hopefully as a means by which to kind of build inroads for the gospel and, and something like that. And he says, are you kidding? You can't trust those people. I'd have to lock all my doors. I wouldn't get to go sit outside on the porch at night without being worried. And he says, I'm not going to do that. And then he looks at her and ends by saying this, look, I'm really glad we had this talk. Uh, But let's get down to business. Will you marry me? And she says, what? Boy, you crazy. (laughs) You crazy. Why does she say that? Because at the heart of every relationship worth having, there's both law and love. There's both law and love. Think about this. If you're in love, you can't live any old way you want. If you're in love, you can't live any old way you want. You have to know the passions and the convictions and the values of the one that you're married to, the one that you love. And in that, the love for the other person is is what fuels the law-keeping. It's what fuels the desire to pay attention to their passions. To what they say is very important. Love fuels the law-keeping, and the law gives guidelines for how the love can be experienced and enjoyed. Love fuels law-keeping, and the law gives guidelines and boundaries for how the love can be experienced and enjoyed the most. So in this way, we see that covenant relationships involve both law and love. Let me lay the biblical language on top of this kind of analogy and definition. In our passage tonight... um, we see that it's a covenant relationship also that God has with his, be- with his people, with one big difference between that of a marriage. And, and it's a big difference. In a marriage, when two people are deciding to move toward one another and to join their lives to one another, they are equals. And it's a process of them looking at each other and their shared values, or their, maybe their different values, but sharing their passions and their values with each other and saying as equals, I'm committing to move toward you and to lay down my life for you in these different ways. And then, and then when both people do that, they will enjoy the benefits of being married. They'll enjoy the benefits of that covenant relationship. And when they do things that go contrary to that sort of love and laying down your life and kindness for one another, they'll, they'll not enjoy the benefits. They'll enjoy something that feels like a curse, Things will get bristly and the relationship will grow cold, even if just for a time. But with God, it's not, the big difference is that it's not two equals coming together. It's not two equals coming together at all because God is sovereign and he's eternal. And he can't relate to his people in exactly the same way because they're just not the same. They're not coming at it from the same place. So, because of that, the covenant arrangement, the covenant love that God has with his people is more like what a king, albeit in God's case, a good, kind, gracious, loving king, but it's more like a, how a king relates to his subjects. It's like a king, how a king relates to the people in his kingdom. Interestingly, in, in the ancient Near Eastern culture into which the Book of Leviticus uh, landed and was written and was situated, there were lots of documents out there about uh, how kings would would relate and speak to their people, their subjects and what 's interesting in those treaties, as they were, is that some of the language in those king to, to vassal servant treaties, some of the language was almost exactly. Ordered Like what we see here in Leviticus 26, showing that it's the language of a superior to someone who may very well be loved and honored within the kingdom, but it's a superior to someone who's lower. In that language that we see uh, in in those treaties, but also here in Leviticus Leviticus 26, is this set in this series of blessings and curses. Right, Those are the things that are intuitive to marriage. If you love one another and kind of do all those things, there will be tremendous blessing and you'll be enjoyment for days. But if you don't do those things, as I mentioned, there will be cursing and it will be, be bristly, like literally maybe cursing at each other. But it will be bristly, right? And it won't be that fun at times. But with God here in Leviticus, he spells it out crystal clear. And we call that the terms of the covenant, which is the second point tonight. When I was growing up, um, my brothers and I I had two brothers. uh, We liked to play with those at-home chemistry sets. Um, How many of y'all had those growing up? Like came with a bunch of little elements? i got some nerds in the room. Great. Um, (laughs) So those things are fun, and you kind of work through the the playbook or the the instructions, and you do the experiments, and and they're fun. But at some point, you've done them all, and they get kind of lame. So my brothers and I, uh, as we were a little adventurous, there wasn't even the Internet back then. So we didn't get online, which is what I was going to say. But we researched and found some additional recipes. And these recipes were a little more exciting. And these recipes also had some disclaimers. And they said, if you do it this way and not this way, there will be a lethal gas that is formed. If you do this and not this, or if you let this element get above this amount of temperature... Um, it will explode violently in front of you. But if you do it correctly, there'll be a bright flash. Or if you do it correctly, you'll see this fizzling, sizzle, sizzling thing over here. But if you do it right, it'll be great. If you don't, it will be bad for you. It's blessings and curses. Right there. And this is what these are the terms. That was the terms of the experiment. Have fun if you do it right, die if you don't. God says, look, there, are, there is blessing to live life the way I've called you to live it. There's tremendous blessing there. So look at the terms in Leviticus 26. God is in, these, in verses 3 through 13. This should be no surprise if you've been here at all this semester. Because what we've seen is that God is over and over and over again in the book of Leviticus saying, I am the God of life and I desire to give you life. The full life, the abundant life. And so here he's looking at an agrarian society and saying, if you do these things, it will be the best life you can imagine. Look down at those verses, just kind of glance at them. Think about this, if you were in an agrarian society, this would be as excited as you could get. Blessings on the land, peace from your enemies, fruitfulness, enjoyment of God's presence. Look at verse 13, I love what he says right here. God says that if you obey me, you'll be a person who walks with your head held high. You won't be depressed. You won't be navel-gazing and self-condemnation. That there is real joy and tangible blessing in following me. But, verses 14 through 39. But if you break the covenant, all of these curses are going to fall down on you. God is saying, I can't... I can't bless disobedient people. I can't, just, I can't just wink at guilt and be like, okay, you go on by. It's just between me and you. I'll, I'll disregard that. God's saying, I can't do that. Why? Because he's a just God. If there were a judge down here at the courthouse who, who did that to people as they came in as guilty, and he said, hey, I got you, dude. Right, just go on over there. You're, you're good. I'll take care of it. The people who suffered at the hands of that person would cry injustice. It's foul. You can't do that. And we'd run that that judge out of town. And God's saying, how much more me, the just judge of the universe? I can't overlook sin. So what are the things right there? They're really they're the opposite of verses three through thirteen, the curses. It's defeat by enemies, drought on the land, living at the at the mercy of Mother Nature and the weather, devastation on crops, and eventually total destruction. So what should start creeping into your minds at this point is this curious tension that goes like this. So does God love his people and want to bless them? Or is he just kind of like hiding out around every corner, waiting for every misstep so that he can unleash his curses on them? Is he actually God who loves his people and wants to bless them, or is he, is he waiting to be that just judge and call down the thunder? Or to ask it another way Are the blessings of God conditional or unconditional? Are the blessings of God conditional and unconditional? And look, y'all, in complete pastoral transparency, which may be a rarity these days, um, as you work through the Old Testament, and really these verses here, uh, verses 40 through 45, give us a little picture of it. As you work through the Old Testament, it looks like the Bible gives competing answers. At points it will seem like that God is totally sold out to his people, and he's all in on them and says, I will never forsake you or leave you, and I love you, and I'll be faithful to my covenant. Other times he's like... But if you screw up, I am done with you. Like I'm done with you. So, which is it? Is God unconditionally loving or unconditionally just? Is He is He good or is He or is He rigid? And what happens when we see God kind of in this seemingly uh, this contradictory position is we tend to go one of two ways. We tend to go one of two ways. On one hand, what I would would call the the liberal side of it, the open and relative side, they say, yeah, there's all those things we should do, that we should do. We should love people and we should follow God's laws and all that. But at the end of the day, God's going to forgive us all anyway. And God is actually loving. And so he's not going to hold us to account for that. So that's on one hand. On the other hand is the conservative side, which says... Yeah, yeah. God is loving, and He does, and He loves us. But at the end of the day, if you want to experience God's love, you better obey Him. You've got to obey Him if you want His love. And so they push us to these two extremes, and that's, that's the tension that the Old Testament brings about. This says either, seemingly, that law is the reality and love is secondary. Sorry, that's over here. Or that love is the reality and that law is secondary. And everybody, as you come to the Old Testament and read it, you slide toward one end or the other. Either either toward liberal relativism or conservative moralism. All through the Old Testament, this tension is not resolved. It's not. So if you've ever read the Old Testament and you are just utterly confused by what is going on, that's for good reason. It's not the end of the story. It's jumping right into the middle of it and thinking that it's all wrapped up. It's not. The point is this. God wants a covenant relationship with us, but because he's God, trying to relate to him with even the slightest flaw in us is a very dangerous thing, a deadly serious thing even. The Bible's consistent question running through is this. How can God draw near and bless a people who are constantly running away from him and disobeying him? I want you to feel this tension. It happens in this passage and it happens throughout all the Old Testament. God is absolutely going to be faithful to, to his end of the bargain. And that's not good news for you. Because we know that we're not going to be faithful to to keep up what should be our end of the bargain. So what do we do? What's the resolution to the tension? Third point, there's a covenant keeper. The good news is that the New Testament actually brings about this astounding fact, that in Jesus, God has fulfilled not only His side of the covenant, but ours too. Galatians 3.13, Apostle Paul says this, that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Now that's a strange phrase, y'all. That Christ became a curse for us. What does that even mean? Here's what it means. That on the cross, Jesus was treated as if He was an evil person, a covenant breaker. He was treated as if He was us and had done all the things wrong. And as such, he is beaten, he's mocked, he's ashamed, he's legally deserving the death that is coming his way. That Jesus becomes a curse for us. It's interesting, I don't know if you've ever read the, the gospel accounts, or maybe you've heard them around Easter time or something, that it says that as they were the, the soldiers and such were getting Jesus ready to go up on the cross, they put something on his head. Do you know what it was? A crown of thorns. Which is interesting. You're like, wow, that would hurt. But what's really interesting is in Genesis chapter 3, thorns are the sign given to Adam for the curse. God says, cursed are you above all things. That that as you go out and try to work, the ground is going to produce thorns instead of crops. And as Jesus dons the crown of thorns to the cross, he is literally, and in every symbolic way, becoming the curse for us. But it's not just that Jesus takes the curse on your behalf. As the only perfect person who fully kept God's covenant laws in every single way, he earned the fullest extent of God's blessing. Jesus did everything right. He fulfilled every single one of the Old Testament commands of God. He did it all, literally, to a T. Signs still delivered. He did everything. He was the full covenant keeper. And because of his great love and his generous heart, having earned the blessings, he does not hold on to them. He gives them away. He gives them away. The author of Hebrews says that in Christ all the promises are yes and amen in him. He does it all. He does it all. And this is what... Causes the Apostle Paul in Romans 8 at the end to like freak out and say, Look, y'all, if God is for us, who can be against us? If he who didn't spare his own son and gave him up for us all, how is he not in him going to graciously give us everything? Paul is saying, Don't you get it? Jesus was the covenant earner, the covenant keeper, and he earned all God's blessings. And at the cross, he's flipping the script, and he's taking the covenant curses so that you can have his covenant blessings. And Paul's saying, God has nothing else to give you. He's not holding back his love or his his affection or his acceptance of you. You get it all in Jesus. And in Romans 4, Paul says, this is why at the cross of Christ, God is said to be both the just and the just. The just judge punishing sin, but also the justifier. The one who, who saves us and who justifies us and makes us right with God. That He's both and. and. What does that mean? Keller says this, on the cross, it's on your I think on the front of your bulletin. On the cross, Jesus Christ absolutely fulfilled the conditions of the law so that God can absolutely love you unconditionally. With his life, he earned the blessing, and with his death, he removes the curse. Jesus Christ fulfills the covenant so that we can be received into it unconditionally. So what? What do we do with that? Look, what I want to suggest is that if you understand that, not just in an intellectual way, not just in a cognitive kind of processing way, but if you understand that and receive that, receive the gospel, the good news of what Jesus did for you at the cross and the life that he gives you in his resurrection. And there's lots of things that will change about your life. I'm going to give you four that I think will definitely show up. The first one is this. It will lead you into a paradoxical obedience. And until you grasp the gospel and what's happening in that covenant reversal of sorts, until you see... Look at the law as something that you don't have to do in order to get God's favor. Until you can look at the law as something that Jesus has fulfilled for you, you will never obey the law. Out of love anyway. You'll do it out of duty and as a means to try to earn God's favor. But if you see that Jesus has fulfilled the law for you, he doesn't do away with it and say those things aren't important. It actually frees your heart up to say, man, that stuff is so serious, it took Jesus to the cross. And so I now get to, but I also have to respond to that out of a desire, a changed desire to do those things out of love for God and out of appreciation for all that he's done for me and Jesus. And so it fuels our obedience. The second thing it does is it leads to absolute trust. Think back with the, the marriage thing. It's scary to get married, and I don't have to tell you all that. It's why you don't date, because you're scared that it might actually end up in marriage. But that's a different sermon. <clears throat> it's scary to be, get married because it's two people looking at each other and admitting this. I have to sacrifice everything about me for you. That I have to give everything that's mine to you, and I have to take everything that's yours onto me. And that can be pretty terrifying. Here's what happens in the gospel, though. In the gospel, in the covenant relationship, Jesus is saying, I want to marry you. I'm bringing you into a covenant with me, but you don't have to be uncertain about my love for you. Because I've already gone to the mat. I've already shown you the fullest extent of my love. I died for you. I cannot do anything else to show you the extent of my love. I have already loved you all the way down. And so you can absolutely trust me with your life and your future and your your relationship. You can trust me with your everything, Jesus is saying. And that begins to shape the way that we not only look at Him, but if we can trust Him in that way, it begins to move us, free us up to move into relationship with others and take a little bit of risk. Because look, y'all, even if they fail you in some way, which they absolutely will, be they friend or spouse or whatever... They will fail you. But even through that, you know that there is one who won't and who hasn't. And so the ultimate security is in him, and you can move toward others and not be scared of the proximate failures because you've already been ultimately loved. And trustworthy is he. Third, this is going to sound weird. It leads to church membership. Told you it sounded weird. Why? Why? Because once you understand the gospel, that you've been brought into relationship by a covenant-keeping God, then you start to look around at other people who have been brought into a relationship with a covenant-keeping God. And for other people who have been brought into relationship with a covenant-keeping God by covenant, you begin to be in covenant with them. And instead of just uh, going to church and kind of consuming what happens there, you begin to look around and say, we've got things in common. Maybe not everything, but the most substantial and substantive things we have in common. And so rather than dating the church, I'm actually going to marry it. I'm going to sign up to be a part of this people. And we're going to go do life together. And I'm going to need your accountability, and you're going to need mine. And we're going to help each other and love each other and have fun, do all these things. But we need each other. And we love each other because God has loved us. And lastly, it leads us to getting serious about God's grace. Look, i fully realized that some of y'all came to college thinking that these would be the years you checked out from God. That these would be the, this would be the time in your life where you go figure yourself out and, and find out who you are and whatever that means. And what I want to hold out to you, and what I hope you see, is that in the Bible, God gives you a way... He gives you a way of understanding, experiencing, and living in the world... That is unrivaled both in its honesty about what's wrong and its hope for the solution and how it can go right. Here's what I mean that if we're going to be honest for like a hot second, we have to realize that we're part of the problem. It's not just that the world is screwed up, it's that I'm screwed up and I'm adding to its screwed upness. But in the gospel, Jesus says, I know and I love you and God has said I love covenant breakers because there's only one covenant keeper and he offered to switch places with you so that you could be counted as covenant keepers and he could be counted as the covenant breaker and what that means is that in Jesus we find the the solution is so much more hopeful because it doesn't depend on us it doesn't depend on how good you are and And how many Bible studies you've been to, it doesn't even depend on how bad you are and how many things you haven't done. It's all about Jesus. That there was one righteous, perfect person. And if you've been good, it doesn't matter. Throw it away. It's all about Jesus. And if you've been bad, it doesn't matter. Throw it away. It's all about his righteousness. And friends, that's called grace. Grace is God's unmerited favor. You don't deserve it. You could never earn it. The only response is you receive it and say, that's amazing. I want that to be true of me. And I want you to see that Jesus is the only place in this world where you'll find love like that. It's free, it's undeserved, and it's yours if you trust him. And I hope you will. I pray that you will. I pray that you will trust him right now, tonight. He will change your life. He's changed mine. He's changed some of yours. Will you let him change yours? Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would do work in our hearts right now. If that is something that we just need to turn from, that we've been doing, I pray that you would do that. Lord, if it's a life of having tried to live apart from you in all kinds of ways, I pray that you would turn our hearts toward Jesus. And that we would see him as the covenant keeper. And the one who loves us. God, I pray that we would see the blessings held out. But that the greatest blessing is you that we get to be back in relationship with you. So give us faith to believe the gospel again tonight, or for the first time. We pray and ask in Jesus' name, amen. amen.